0: For starting things off today, I had this observation this last week. So we have systems and things in our world that guide us in the direction we should go, to reach the places that we want to go. Kind of like arrow signs in a store or in any kind of building, that are designed to do just that. They point you in the direction that the store plans for you to go to make your experience in that place the most effective it can be, or so they want you to believe. Now, I remember the first few times that I went to a store up in Portland called Ikea. Anybody been there? A few hands. Okay, awesome. Well, when it first came in, a long time ago, my mom and I we went to IKEA, and her opinion of the experience was not really a positive one. Uh, she commented that it felt like they were just herding cattle, uh, and my mom felt jostled and forced through this maze of the showroom that's up on top, through the warehouse portion and out the door. No freedom just the fastest most efficient way to get through the store buy more stuff and make room for the next lot of cattle i mean customers some of you got that so that was back in 2007 and as the years have come and gone uh we cattle we cows have gotten a little bit more savvy and used to the game of all those arrows that are supposed to direct you through the store and we take them more as suggestions and guidelines than hard and fast rules but during the pandemic i don't know about you or how things were here in florence but where we were living at the time when everything started shutting down and grocery stores had to be a lot more purposeful in how they directed traffic Uh, they had these arrows on the ground, these big vinyl arrows on the ground that told you which one way in an aisle you were supposed to go. There was this one time that I was accosted by another shopper for going the wrong way. And I had no idea. I didn't even see that there were arrows on the ground, but they accosted me nonetheless. And so this was not my finest moment, but we went around uh, the next aisle over to go the correct way, and I did one of those verbal processing things where I was speaking it out loud to Angie, like, okay, honey, we're going over here. We're going the right way down the aisle just loud enough so that the person who just accosted me could hear me. It was not my finest moment. It wasn't my worst, but I, I, I confess that to you all today. Now, A store experience may be uncomfortable, but it doesn't necessarily end up causing a lot of damage, right? Not like if you happen to be driving down in a car or some vehicle, down a one-way going the opposite direction. The first time that ever happened to me was in downtown Portland, because I was born and raised in that area, so forgive me, but I was in downtown Portland, and thankfully, it was late at night, few cars were on the road, and in that moment, I felt all kinds of anxieties come over me, and I, in that place, I said all kinds of colorful words that I won't say here, because I was really, really freaked out. I was just 18 years old at the time, and so then I, I quickly found a way to turn onto a street going the right direction, and I was so relieved that I had survived and I'm glad that I'm here this morning. So here we go. Now there's a reason I bring all of this up. I'm sure you're wondering, why is he bringing up traffic and Ikea of all places and going against the grain? Last week, we started a series called The Kingdom Manifesto. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've reached this place in the book where Jesus is teaching his disciples and a crowd of people along the side of a mountain by the Sea of Galilee. And the major theme that comes up over and over again throughout the Gospel of Matthew is this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Other Gospel writers call it the kingdom of God, or the Gospel of John calls it eternal life. But all of it is pointing to this promise that God was going to send a Savior called the Messiah to save his people from their sin and to set all things right. Like we talked about last week, the nature of this kingdom of God is twofold. That it is something that has been established. Jesus started it and we can experience it here and now. And there will come a day when Jesus comes back to completely establish his kingdom here on this earth and his rule and reign here. So right there at the start of Jesus' ministry when he had been preaching repentance because the kingdom of heaven was near and healing all kinds of people from all over with all kinds of issues, Jesus went on to lay out the norms and values of the kingdom of God to the people who were following him. And he started with this group of eight blessings that are kind of like the preamble of this verbal kingdom constitution that we're calling the kingdom manifesto. Kicking things off last week, we learned that these eight blessings were given to people who showed eight different character traits the first four showed us that we receive God's blessing through practiced faith because each of those conditions revealed that those, those citizens of God's kingdom were living out their faith and trust in God because he loved them and made a way for them to be in his kingdom and they had to figure out what that meant uh, to live out that faith and stay true to him right from the start jesus challenged his disciples then and he challenges us today with this list of blessings that's most commonly known as the beatitudes Um, because these qualities like repentance and mourning and humility and hungering and thirsting for righteousness they're not exactly what you would picture in your head when you think ah there's blessing here we go those people are blessed we don't necessarily associate that and yet jesus lists them out for us and so it shows us that god gives this promise to these people and shows favor to them as they're experiencing the kingdom both now and eventually in the not yet Through these blessings, Jesus illustrates that central truth we looked at last time, that we are blessed when we live the king's way. Now, I'm not talking about an earthly king. I'm talking about God as king. But the king's way is higher than humanity can reach in our own strength. And so we need God's grace, and we need God's Holy Spirit to help us develop this character in our lives both for the now and the not yet. So, the title for today's message is Counter Culture Part 2. Our main passage is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And the big idea that we're going to continue exploring this morning is that we are blessed when we live the King's way. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The New Oxford Dictionary defines this word counterculture as a way of life and set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with the prevailing social norms. The reason I've chosen this word to summarize our exposure to these Beatitudes, these eight blessings, and the reality that they describe is that even though that phrase counterculture was born out of the 1960s hippie movement, I think that in its purest form, the idea of counterculture captures the subversive tension that exists when the kingdom of heaven is in our world i would submit to you today that the kingdom of jesus that he's speaking about here in matthew 5 is at variance with the prevailing social norms of our day and that these eight blessings introduce us to this tension so let's take a look at the remaining four in verses 7 through 10 We learn from our passage, if you're taking notes, that we participate in God's blessing through spiritual formation. We participate in God's blessing through spiritual formation. And this character is formed in us as we apply the king's way to our life of faith. Jesus said in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Bible also says in James chapter 2, verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In my high school English class, my teacher did this exercise with us. She asked our class to take a vote, show of hands, whether we believed that there should be a death penalty in America, in today's society. Now, the class was divided along the common lines that you would expect, that all the adults who were in our lives had passed on their opinions onto us. Those who believe that justice needs to be served... And so if they did something deserving of it, then absolutely they should pay for their crimes. Then there were those who were shocked and appalled that we would even ask the question and that they, their opinion was that, well, they, you should give them prison time. You should allow them an opportunity to rehabilitate and eventually be released on good behavior. Now I bring this up not to stir the pot, And not because I think we're going to solve this question this morning, but I do it to illustrate something. I was really convicted as, I think I was a sophomore or or a junior in high school, I was convicted in that classroom that day because I looked around me and I realized that all the kids who had their hands raised were kids who claimed the name of Jesus, who had voted for in favor of the death penalty in our justice system they were kids that i knew went to youth group i knew their families went to church i knew that we had talked in the commons area we had talked about our faith in jesus at one time or another and yet these were the kids who raised their hand yes there should be a death penalty and even my hand was raised what i find most convicting and ironic about that truth of that situation is that we were kids who claimed the name of Jesus from families and communities that claimed the name of Jesus as their Savior and Lord but for a people who had accepted Jesus gift of salvation by grace through faith in that little English classroom you would consider and wonder if we had ever really fully received the mercy and kindness from God that we claimed our lives showed they should show what we receive from god have you received god's love for you are you living from a place of grace or are you still tripping on some shame and judgment the truth is when you receive the mercy that god gives that should change how you yourself show mercy to other people when we let god's mercy shape and form us our response to others is the overflow of the goodness that we have received now the thing about mercy just like grace is that it's something that you don't deserve you are getting something that you don't deserve And so when we show mercy, we are showing things to people because they don't deserve those things. I'm reminded of, um, I've heard different stories over the years because there's, it it crops up about every five or ten years or so, there's some horrific event that takes place where somebody, some person uh, goes on some kind of murdering spree or is a part of some, horrible atrocity and then when they're in court somebody who whose family members were were killed because of that people or those family members from the witness stand say i forgive you how powerful that is when in that place when they have every right to judge they choose to show mercy imagine for a moment that you needed to develop this muscle in your faith called mercy. How would that get worked out in our day-to-day life? Paul writes about it in Ephesians. He says this to the believers at the church of Ephesus. He says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in, in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5 1 through 2. When we give others what God has given us, we are blessed with a living and active testimony of how God has been merciful to us and how we have begun the process of living from that place of mercy. So we participate in God's blessing through spiritual formation, and this character is formed in us, and we are blessed when we live the king's way, which from this first blessing we're talking about is mercy, the way of mercy. How's everybody doing so far? Good? This is going to be a hard word today, so like just, just buckle up. Here we go. Uh, if you have any Uh, uh, comments or concern to me, uh, talk to me afterwards. I would love to chat with you because I'm sure I'm going to press on some buttons this morning. So here we go. Jesus went on to say in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The Bible uses the word heart, pure in heart, to describe the core of who we are. And wrapped up in that Jewish understanding of the word heart at its core, it's the core of our being, our, our mind, our will, our emotions. Some verses in the Hebrew scriptures that give us a picture of the human heart condition are these. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? From Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, the psalmist writes, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Also, in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, God speaking to his people, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Later in Matthew 15, which we're not anywhere near, for the next couple of months but jesus had this to say about the human heart condition he says in matthew 15 verses 19 through 20 he says for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness slander these are what defile a person but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone unless you're in a pandemic come on light and levity everybody here we go so in the sermon on the mount what does jesus mean when he says that there are those who have a pure heart i think there are a few things that work here number one we have a heart problem not not a physical literal one unless you were born with that like me but we we have a heart problem because of sin, that ends up shaping the whole of our lives. Sin is what separates us from God and keeps us from having a right relationship with him. Number two, if we want our hearts to be purified so that we can be with God, to see God, there is a process that includes confession, repentance, and sacrifice to clean us of our sin and make us ready to meet with God. Did you know that the same person who wrote Psalm 24, that I just read a few verses from, also wrote these words in Psalm 51? He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Did you ever wonder what King David was going through in his life when he wrote those words. Some people are shocked to know, uh, unless you happen to read something in, in the notes in your Bible, if you have one that does that. So King David, he, he was at a place where everything was good. He was coasting along in life. The kingdom was united. Everything was great. But he screwed up big time. He slept with one of his best friend's wives, then tried to cover it up, then gave the order that left that same friend exposed on the battlefield so that that friend got killed, and then tried to play it cool like he was going to do the right thing and marry that poor widow. This was really bad. And so one day God confronted him about his sin through the prophet nathan at the time and david listened and he confessed his sin he repented and he wrote those words in psalm 51 create in me a clean heart O god and renew a right spirit within me asking god to make his heart clean now we could get all indignant at david for being an idiot and following those sinful urges But the thing that David got right is that he kept short accounts with God. If there was sin in his life and he knew there was sin in his life, he went through the process of confession, repentance, and sacrifice to make things right. David loved God that much. Now, that didn't get him off the hook of the natural consequences of that sin. That's eventually why the kingdom split up and it's this this whole big thing and it's this big drama from then on in David's life but his heart was clean before God now back to Jesus teaching for people in God's kingdom how are their hearts made pure for you and I today how are we made pure so that we can stand in God's holy presence and have a relationship with with him, whether that's here in this place in this house, or whether we're on Bay Street getting a cup of coffee, or whatever we're doing down there. How can we exist in the presence of a holy God? Let's find out. Our hearts are made clean by the blood of Jesus from his sacrifice on the cross. In one moment, for all sin, past, present, and future, Jesus carried our sin, your sin and mine, to the cross. And that's the gift of grace, that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, we are forgiven of our sin. All the sin we have committed, all the sin we're, maybe we're in in that moment, and even all the sin until we die and go and be with Jesus, we're forgiven and made clean. And his blood cleanses us from all sin. The, in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when we sin, having received God's gift of grace through faith, All we need to do is confess our sin to God and repent. Then, like King David, we will have pure and clean hearts before the Lord. This is the process that we're in until either we get to heaven with Jesus, or he comes back and fully establishes his kingdom here on this earth once and for all. And when our hearts are pure, we are blessed with intimacy, with a God who loves us and wants to be seen and known by us. So until that day in the kingdom that is here and now, in part, those with pure hearts can see God through experiencing the Holy Spirit here and now. And the Holy Spirit helps us as we participate In God's blessings through spiritual formation, that character is formed in us and we are blessed when we live the king's way, which in this case is the way of a pure heart that's set apart for the king. Now, continuing on in verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In the culture that Jesus was speaking into, the Jewish culture at the time, it was an Eastern culture that phrase, called sons of, meant to have the nature of what you were being called a son of. To be a child of God then would mean that you had had, you you possessed it, you had and carried with you the nature of God. And similar to the kingdom people who showed mercy, the peacemakers are people who have been given peace, and reconciliation. And as a result, they bring that peace of God with them everywhere they go. Again, from 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible teaches that all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us, that's you and me, guys, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Amen? Amen. Which means that when we avoid fights in order to make peace and bring harmony to people and situations around us, when we seek to build an atmosphere of God's peace and understanding in our homes, on our streets, in our communities, we show that we have experienced and received God's nature of love. And in that place, we will show that we have the nature of God living inside of us through the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, you could write me off and say, you know, Tim, that's just a bunch of hippy-dippy baloney, and I can't get behind that. And I would tell you, okay, I can respect that. But the Bible is clear. If we are going to represent Jesus to the world, a primary characteristic that needs to shine through us is the quality of reconciliation and peacemaking. Because that's the heart of our God for you and for me. I think that all this talk of peacemakers having the quality of God's nature with them applies to the kingdom of God both now and in the the not yet. But one thing's for sure, when Jesus does come to set all things to right, fully and completely establish his kingdom right here on earth, there will be peace like we've never known before. Peace that is beyond our understanding. And there will be no need for fighting and for wars. There will be no need for disputes and disagreements because God will be in charge and he will set all things right. I love this, this prophecy about God's kingdom being fully established from Micah chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, it says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's in the Bible, friends. That, that's there. And so we participate in God's blessing through spiritual formation. in this character and qualities formed in us when we live the king's way through peacemaking. The eighth blessing is probably the strangest and most jarring of the bunch in verse 10 when jesus said blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven in his commentary on the gospel of matthew a guy named leon morris said this about persecution quote in the new testament it is mostly used of inflicting suffering on people who hold beliefs that the establishment frowns on. That sounds familiar. And it is this kind of persecution of which Jesus speaks here. He does not speak of persecution as such, but of persecution for the sake of righteousness. People may suffer for doing evil, but such suffering is punishment, not persecution remember back when i was talking about one-way streets and some of you were getting freaked out because you've had those experiences too imagine with me this parable of one-way streets one you're in the situation and you're on this road and all the cars are going one direction nothing strange there nothing to sneeze at really, except for that one of the drivers, they notice that they're all going the wrong direction. They're going a different direction of the flow of traffic than the city planners had originally designed and such. And so one of the drivers, they notice this, but they don't want to cause waves or a collision. Can you imagine? So even though they may see that everybody is going the wrong way, they just ignore it and keep going along just to get along. But imagine there's a different driver. They also notice that everyone is going the wrong way and that the flow of traffic is actually meant to go the opposite way and that everyone, you know, they think it should be going this way but it actually should be going that way and they're so convinced of this fact that they start to change lanes maybe even get on the shoulder of the road so that they can turn around and they 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 have conviction you guys they start driving in the truly correct way and even though they're right i imagine this might have been their experience some of those other cars probably started honking right maybe they rolled down their windows and uh, those people were shouting all kinds of colorful language at them, at this lone driver driving in the correct direction. <sighs> Who needs that? Maybe there would be a clash or even a collision between cars. But also, this one driver's commitment to driving the right way might make some of the other drivers bold enough to change direction as well because they've also identified that they are all headed in the wrong direction. Let's expand this out a little bit. Imagine this isn't just one street in one city, but imagine the entire world, all seven or eight billion of us are all cars headed in one direction on a one lane highway, but we're all going the wrong direction. Now eventually, after enough collisions, a few drivers might be arrested. You know, they might be taken to court and uh, have to answer for their crime of going the opposite direction. How dare they? But because of this, you know, maybe they were convicted of the crime. Maybe they were slandered in court. Maybe there were people who were testifying falsely against them even though there's every reason in the world flow traffic's going this way everybody's going that way it should be a no-brainer but it's not so the judge and the jury just decide you know what we're going to keep things the way they are and restore order and so they sentence these few enlightened drivers to prison and maybe even a few of them if they caused a lot of collisions to death now we could take this parable to a lot of extremes but here's my point god created the world and in the beginning he called it good complete perfect 100 no error and sin ruined god's good world and the people in it but for thousands of years we have just assumed that because sin is the flow that resulted from original sin, that, well, that's right and normal. That's how things should be. That's just normal. Why, why change directions when you can just go along to get along? That's, but that's not how God meant for us to live. Jesus came to show us the right way to be human, the way God intended for humanity to live, But this was counterculture to the established norms of value of his world. And I believe for our world, especially today. And so the experience of the early church and a good portion of the church in the world today, by the way, they experience all kinds of persecution because of their faith in Jesus and how they live that out because they are choosing to live the king's way not the world's way and so we participate in god's blessing through spiritual formation and we're blessed when we live the king's way even in and especially through persecution and jesus wraps up this introduction to his kingdom manifesto with the guarantee to his disciples that they will face persecution it's not a maybe, it's not an if, but if they are choosing to truly follow Jesus because they persecuted Jesus and ultimately sent him to the cross for living rightly, how could we expect any less? Now, the unfortunate challenge for us today in America is that we, we've kind of cushioned things because we have laws and things in place that, that uh, secure our freedoms. And I am grateful for that. It's the reason I can stand up here and even talk about persecution um, and even post it online and not get censored and all, all of that kind of stuff. I am I'm grateful that we live in America and that, that we have these freedoms. But we have brothers and sisters in the world today who don't even get to gather in in meetings this size? They have to meet in their homes. Did you know that in North Korea, that uh, there are Christians uh, who, when they're in their homes, the comfort of their own homes quote unquote, they pray with their eyes open so that nobody can accuse them of praying to someone other than Kim Jong-un. They, they pray with their eyes open. Most of us, you know, we, we take the luxury, unless I'm watching my children to see if they're acting a fool, at the dinner table. Like, we, we bow our heads and we close our eyes. But they just carry on as though it's a conversation. And they face immense persecution in North Korea, That's just one country out of the many of the world that are hostile towards Christians. And so today, as we wrap this up, as we wrap up this whole whole teaching on the Beatitudes and we look ahead at all the cool things Jesus is going to talk about to challenge us, I want to encourage you that God loves you, I want to encourage you that God is with you, and that no matter what you're going through, he's never going to leave you, and he's never going to forsake you. And like our kids learned at KFC the other night, God's with you always. And he's with our brothers and sisters who are facing all those persecutions that we can't even imagine. And so today, uh, worship team, you can go ahead and come up. Uh, we're going to close in a song. Uh, it was written in the '90s. It, it became kind of this new kind of hymn. And the thing I love most about it is that, in the English-speaking world at least, it's a song that gets sung a lot. And it kind of—it's a a uniting anthem for the church. It's called In Christ Alone. And it anchors us to the gospel. It anchors us to the fact that we have Jesus, the King who came to save you and save me. And that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. So would you stand with us as we close in a time of worship? Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this hard word this morning. Lord, thank you that you see us. Thank you that you you know what we're going through and you are with us always. Lord, we do lift up our brothers and sisters across the world who are facing all kinds of persecution. And Lord, we ask that you would help them be brave, that you would help them stand firm in their faith and that they would not waver and they would be faithful to the end, just like you, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we sing this song, would you stir in our hearts a love for you and a knowledge of you that transcends all of our circumstance? In Jesus' name, amen.